What is APRV, airway pressure release ventilation? It's a mode of ventilation that all the resuscitationists and intensivists are talking about. It's sexy, it's cool, but does it really make a difference? We got two experts in APRV, Rory Spiegel and Max Hoxstein, to come to ResusX Revolved and debate just that. The two of these guys are phenomenal intensivists and are very evidence-based in their approach. And this debate, the two of them go at it to see whether or not APRV should be a mode we use for everybody or only reserved for certain cases. Let's listen in. All right, all right, all right. I am very, very excited for this debate because this is the debate on AP. Now, let me just start off by saying over here, we have Rory Spiegel and over there, we have Max Hochstein and I will let them introduce themselves in just a moment. But let me tell you that one of the most controversial things that I've experienced in my training without using any names is there are some people who think that APRV is a tool that you should use for certain situations. And there are other people that be, think that APRV should be used for anything and anything that gets mechanically ventilated. And that's what this debate is all about. So gentlemen, we're gonna break the rules a little bit. You know, we were doing seven minutes forward each side and then two minutes rebuttal. You guys just wanna do your own thing and I'm just gonna sit back with a bag of popcorn and watch you all slug it out. So who's going first? I'll start. Okay. Um, yeah, so Max and I decided we'll just kind of go no holds bar. Uh, brawl and he has uh, graciously agreed to take the losing side on this debate um, and uh, we're just going to start and uh, we figured we would cover a bunch of topics that usually get debated with APRV um, and kind of look at both sides of them and uh, I'll tell you why we're, I'm right and I'll, he'll tell you why he's wrong and we'll kind of go from there um, so why don't we start with uh, the evidence in APRV Max, you want to start that off? We'll tell you that there's probably no evidence to use APRV. So in 2018 BC, that is to say before COVID, uh, the incidence of ARDS was going down. Uh, and uh, we saw this in reality in studies in APRV because it was really difficult to study. Uh, and we really only have one study to look at that's rigorous enough to even talk about APRV that's worthy uh, of discussion, uh, which is the 2017 Zhao trial, which seems to be like the not-so-secret handshake uh, of the APRV cognoscente. Uh, so if, if you take in COVID, uh, there was a recent study of like 90-some-odd patients uh, that were put on true APRV. Uh, the APRV uh, people will tell you that, well, uh, there's a fixed and personalized APRV and what some people call APRV is what I call APRV. Uh, these patients were all put on real APRV and they didn't seem to do much better. Uh, so if we take COVID out of the picture, uh, there was recent studies that looked at APRV in patients that underwent cardiac surgery, for example. And these were patients in, uh, that underwent cardiopulmonary bypass with fine-ish hearts who were probably going to do just fine even if they were put on something ridiculous like PRVC. Uh, and there's no clear standard for how APRV settings should be set. So how do you know that you're actually approaching FRC? It's your magical P high, Rory. That's great, Max. Um, so I think the first question is, uh, it, when you come up with the argument that there is no evidence for APRV, I would offer, well, what mode do you have this large randomized control trial of 5,000 patients showing benefit for? 
Um, and often the answer is the armor trial, um, that that is the, the mode suggesting that um, a volume control mode of ventilation is the mode to choose. But I would offer that's not really a study looking at modes of ventilation. Both sides got the same mode of ventilation and all they really were looking at, this is a study on a tidal volume strategy, the amount of volume given. When you do look at APRV, yes, there are, are studies that use fixed APRV or doing APRV incorrectly where you don't actually control the patient's T low or the amount of time you exhale. And if you're going to do that, you're doing what amounts to inverse ratio ventilation. And yes, it, it it's not going to work. It's not going to do what APRV should do. And so you have to be sure you're looking at studies that's actually doing APRV appropriately or titrating to a patient's T low. When you look at those studies um, and you take them in totality, there actually does appear to be a benefit when using APRV compared to low tidal volume ventilation. You see patients get off the bed faster, they need less sedation. There's even a mortality benefit in the most recent randomized trial in 2019 published in critical care meds. All right, so one of the arguments uh, that I like to use is hypercapnia. Uh, so we like to tolerate hypercapnia in ARDS, and it's very liberating to finally not care uh, about uh, a metric that we check so often, right? Uh, but the proceedings from the Inspire's uh, three investigations uh, made me think about the importance of systemic hypercarbia, right? So you have vaguely mediated increases in airway resistance and very clear uh, hemodynamic trespass. Uh, and although CO2 is just a fine anesthetic with a MAC of 120, respiratory acidosis probably has very real consequence, including the hemodynamic shambles. Uh, in fact, the ARMA trial had the presence of mind uh, to set guardrails uh, of a pH of less than 7.15. And if they dipped below that, they got a life-saving infusion of sodium bicarbonate. So, you know, and some patients aren't breathing, right? And therefore they just can't manage their metabolic burden. Uh, and while you can believe that patients just breathe uh, at P high, is probably too inconsistent uh, of a ventilatory effort to guarantee their safe minute ventilation. I think that's totally fair. Um, I do not like to let my patients get hypercapnic uh, about as much as you do, and nor do I like the, the life-saving bicarb infusions. Um, I think what I would offer is if you look at the data on APRV, for any given minute ventilation, patients on APRV have a lower PCO2 than patients on a traditional mode of ventilation. Now, some people banty around some APRV voodoo of, of your, your getting bulk flow ventilation, but likely it's just because you're recruiting um, and you're improving VQ matching. Um, so what I would say is if you have someone on APRV and you don't want them to get hypercapnic, don't let them get hypercapnic. You're in control of their respiratory rate or the amount of time that you bulk ventilate them. And it really depends on the patient and how much you want them to ventilate and how much you are going to ventilate for them. And that, that really depends on the degree of sickness. So in a very sick patient early on in their disease, when their lung is really small, and it's not safe for them to breathe yet, they can't do any spontaneous ventilation. So you have to breathe for them, which means your T low, or excuse me, your T high has to be at levels that will actually adequately ventilate them for their minute ventilation needs. If you do that, then patients don't get hypercapnic and it works like any other mode of ventilation. All right, so what do you... What do you say for the hemodynamics argument? Uh, so I will, I can attest that high airway pressures uh, can be really bad. Uh, and we know that high airway pressures lower RV inflow and therefore stroke volume. Uh, and a lot of proponents of the open lung concept uh, will cite, well, it's really good for hemodynamics. Uh, and what they mean to say is that 
high airway pressures for, uh, are good for the LV by way of lowering the transmural gradient, but as usual, they forget about the people's ventricle. So the way that the right heart uh, and the left heart respond to PEEP is obviously like very different uh, by way of the types of resistors that they face, right? So the left heart uh, faces resistors in series and the right heart faces uh, resistors in parallel. Uh, and several things kill the right ventricle. Uh, and the final common pathway for this is raising PVR. Uh, and that's what high mean airway pressures do. So how can you justify using a mode of mechanical ventilation which raises PVR uh, when anywhere between 40 and 80% of patients with ARDS suffer from core pulmonale? I think it's a great point. And I think there's more nuance to this discussion than generally is had when we talk about high airway pressures and increased pulmonary vascular resistance. Um, and I think it gets down to patients have their best pulmonary vascular resistance or optimal flow um, at FRC. And the closer you get a patient to that level, the better they will do. Um, and so, yes, if you apply APRV incorrectly and over distend patients, um, you will actually distribute that pressure to the to the, the pulmonary vessels and to the right heart, and you will see increases in pulmonary vascular resistance in right heart strain. But if you apply APRV correctly, um, and you're applying your P-high to get people back to FRC, you actually see improvements in your pulmonary, pulmonary indexes. There's a number of RCTs looking at this with people randomized to APRV or uh, normal traditional modes of ventilation with swans in place. Um, and they all demonstrate that people on APRV have about the same, even better pumping in this when you get them close to FRC. There are moments in APRV, especially when you're initially switching someone over from a traditional mode to APRV, that you will see hemodynamic perturbations. Um, and this is what I think is due to the fact that lung takes time to recruit, hours to days, but over distends instantly. Um, so when you initially put someone on APRV, you will see their pressure requirements go up, their oxygenation go down, and it's a small dip. And then over the course of the next few minutes to hours, those systemic effects reverse. Um, so I think mostly the hemodynamic issues with APRV is, is generally overstated. Um, and if you're applying your P high correctly and really are thoughtful about getting people to act back to FRC, you actually see improvement in pressure requirements and improvement in pulmonary indices. So the way that we want to improve all these pulmonary uh, indices is doing what we know best and uh, how we know how to do it. Uh, that is to say, using lung protective ventilation. Uh, and when you have such a steep driving pressure, uh, which by the way, seems to be very inconsistently defined uh, for uh, APRV, uh, during your release volumes, you can have these monstrous tidal volumes, which uh, very clearly are outside of these six mils per kilo uh, prescribed from on high uh, of the ARMA trial. Um, and if you're going to invoke, well, uh, those tidal volumes are high, um, but really their, their driving pressure is, you know, is below a number that I believe is safe. Um, do you routinely measure patients' driving pressure? Do you measure it with uh, the P low that you're giving uh, or the intrinsic PEEP? I think it's a great question. And again, I think it often has more nuance than we tend to have in this debate. And I think it has to go back to ARMA to start um, and looking at what they actually did in ARMA. So if you go back and look at the ARMA trial, which is obviously one of the landmark trials in critical care, but what they compared in patients with or a small baby lung with an empiric 6 cc's per kg tidal volume better than an empiric 12 cc's per kg tidal volume. And shockingly, to no one's surprise, they found if you give a small lung, a small tidal volume, the patients do better than if you give an empiric large volume. 
But what the study didn't look at was is an empiric 6 Cs per kg of tidal volume better than ventilating that patient's lung for the size of the lung that they have. Meaning a patient with really small lungs, you give a really small tidal volume. In patients with larger lumps, you accept the larger tidal volume. In a patient who's really sick and has a small lung, giving a, a small tidal volume is important. As they get healthier and their lung gets bigger, you can give them larger volumes. There's lots of data showing that's okay. Um, and in fact, I, I suggest most of us do that in practice. When you have them really sick, um, you have them at a very tight tidal volume. And then as they get better, you say, I'm going to liberalize their tidal volume because I, I intrinsically think in my brain that they can accept more volume safely. This APRV does. You look at how you HRV, APRV is based on compliance of the patient and where you cut them off on the breath. That's how you get a release volume. So when you look at a curve on their exhalation curve, right, they will get back to zero very quickly, and thus you have to have a very narrow T-low to cut them off. And their release volumes will often be smaller than whatever tidal volume you had them set at before. It's often smaller than six cc's per kg. Sometimes it's four. It's very small. Um, but as they get better and that lung recruits and gets closer to FRC, you'll actually see those tidal volumes just naturally increase. They'll increase to five. They'll increase to six. They'll increase to seven. They'll increase to eight. They'll increase to 10 cc's per kg um, because the patient now has lung volumes to take it. Now, the way I feel safe about that is I do what you suggested. I measure a driving pressure. And the way I do it is I'll take my P high and I do an expiratory hold. The expiratory hold essentially shows you the pressure in the lung after you've cut off that T low breath. So if your, your P high is whatever you set it at, your P low essentially is zero. Um, the lung never reaches zero because you're cutting the breath off with that T low. And so you're going to measure your driving pressure by taking your P high and subtracting that trapping pressure, right? And often what you'll see when they're really sick, you'll have driving pressures of 16, 17, 18, really high, despite having a tidal volume that's way under six cc's per kg. Now that I feel a lot less good about than when I've recruited the patient and they're their, their release volumes are now up to six, seven, eight, even 10 cc's per kg, but I have a driving pressure of six or four or something incredibly low. That's what happens with APRV. Um, and no, we don't have a specific trial looking at that, but we do have a reasonable amount of evidence looking at APRV compared to normal tidal volume ventilation or traditional modes of ventilation where this process is built in. This is what happens when you use APRV. The Zao trial is the most specific is as you look at their days over time, their tidal volumes did increase. And again, you didn't see increase in pneumothorax, actual, actual, uh, rate of pneumothorax was lower in the APRV group than it was in the traditional mode of ventilation. You don't see an increase in mortality and you actually saw less time on the ventilator. And so I think overall, as long as you're using APRV correctly, you're measuring your driving pressures, you're seeing increase in lung volumes uh, and in, in recruitment of the lung getting closer to FRC, I don't think you have to be worried about those increasing tidal volumes. In fact, I think that was one of the things that make me feel pretty good about how I'm going on APRV that I'm recruiting lung and getting closer to FRC. So each one of these steps that you're talking about requires very small titrations in manipulations of the ventilator. Uh, I don't know about your ICU, but in uh, my ICU, I have a range of patients. Uh, we have uh, lots of things to do. Uh, we have a lot of acuity. And to stand there at a ventilator uh, and manipulate uh, T low uh, by 0.1 seconds uh, is a high cognitive burden. Uh, and I don't, uh, I'm not always there overnight. 
And uh, when you put a patient on APRV, I find that uh, there are small changes that happen with or without uh, being aware of them. Uh, so do you, I wonder if it's safer uh, to have patients uh, on either volume cycled or time cycled ventilation uh, where your crew is more familiar with these modes uh, of ventilation and are less likely to harm patients. Uh, and let's face it, bad things happen overnight. Uh, and in times of crisis, it's the wrong thing to rely on a tool that you're less familiar with. I think that's a totally valid point. And I think the, the, the group you're working with, your nurses, your RTs, and your physicians all have to be somewhat familiar with APRV. I'll tell you the best way not to get familiar with APRV is continual to say that APRV is too complicated, it's too dangerous, we shouldn't use it because it's just simply too hard a mode to do. I can't um, even I, spell APRV. In fact, the only way to get comfortable with APRV is to do APRV, right? And you do it safely, you do it with people who understand it, who are teaching other people, and slowly you grow a cohort of, 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 of physicians, of RTs, of nurses who are comfortable and are able to use it. But if we continue to say this is just simply too hard and people don't understand it, we will never get good at that. There's been many things in medicine that are hard and difficult and need a team. And we don't just simply say, you know what, this is too hard for us. Let's just go home. We don't have to do this. We'll stick to something else. I agree it's something that we have to work on, um, but I don't think it's something that is out of the capacity of intensivists and RTs and our intensive care nurses to, to learn. And it's something that I think offers a bunch of advantages uh, that especially in a critical care hospital receiving ARDS patients it should be a tool that we have and are comfortable with. So what you're saying is, hey, I just met you. This is crazy. You're hypoxic. So maybe APRV? I think that's about right. Yes. All right. All right. I think that wraps us up. Um, feel free to crown me the winner anytime you want. Here. Well, slow down there, buddy. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you something. We, uh, we don't announce any winners for these debates, but we let the comments section decide. So put ahead, but go ahead and put in the comments who you think uh, won the debate. More importantly, mostly what you do, because we don't like to say anyone really won or lost this debate. I will say for one thing, though, that you guys, even though this was like an academic slugfest, you conducted yourselves way better than the Canadians yesterday. That was just, it was just brutal bloodbath. Um, so thank you both, both for being here, monitor the chat, but I do want to take this time to thank you for being here, taking the time to show us both your arguments. And uh, I think we'll probably wind up just meeting somewhere in the middle.